we just don't. There's no way to like buy a building to make it go away. We don't have that kind of shit. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, it, was, it was wild, man. Like we were going, like we were going to school. I was briefly in school with like Michael Jordan's kid. Like we were in the same class. Like it was me and Jazzy Jordan, and that was the only two black people in that class. <laughs> I'm Deisha Filyaw, and I'm the author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, a collection of nine stories about Black women, sex, and the Black church. My name is Jerry Kraft. I'm the author and the illustrator of the graphic novels New Kid and Class Act. My name is Anne Winter, and I am an author of children's books. I live in Austin, Texas. Hi everyone, um, thank you Gary so much for having me on. This is a huge pleasure. My name is Andre Fenton. I'm a young adult author and poet, spoken word artist from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Hi Gary, thank you so much. Um, I am Andrea Wang. I write books for kids and most recently uh, my picture book, Watercress, and my debut middle grade novel, The Many. It's personal. It was just the two of us. Shout out to Jazzy if it ever makes it to you. I miss you, girl. Uh, but that was it. That was that. That was it. That was it. Was dog? It's so wild. Like you all talk about a story where my mom was a was a fucking G. Like yo, when she found out Michael Jordan's kids was coming around, she came to every security guard with a picture and said, "This is my kid. This is me. This is my kid. This is me. You see where I'm? You see where I'm going with this? This is my kid. This is me. You see how he looks exactly like me? I am the one who picks him up." Nobody else ever picks him up. It is literally just me. If somebody else comes and tries to take him away, they are trying to kidnap him because they think he's one of the Jordans and we don't have ransom money. <laughs> it was like, that is the situation. <laughs> that is the situation, right? And so all through that- That must like, have been a thing though. Was that, that must have been a thing though. Like him and like Jordan's kids must have had- Oh yeah, things. no, that's why the, I think that's part of why the, they were only there for like a semester. They were only there for like the first part of third grade and then they dipped out because I think that like Jordan bought the Hornets and that was kind of the, the end of the end of it. Uh, never saw her again. Still follow her on Instagram though. <laughs> I'm telling you, but like that is a situation, right? That is a situation that I was in as a kid. Like, and so like in some ways, like you're able to appreciate the scale because it just feels so much larger than you, but you also can't possibly appreciate the scale of like what has been sacrificed and managed and finessed in order for you to be in this space. You only know that the stakes are incredibly high and that like the two people you love and trust most in the world put you here and that you have to trust that you have to learn to trust that like the fact of the matter is every moment of this is going to be incredibly hard 
every moment of this like because I was also like I basically skipped a grade because I like I was too young to be in the grade that I was in they were like trying to like finesse my parents and like putting me into junior kindergarten they were like nah you can do it and so for the rest of that time period I was just consistently like the first or second youngest in the whole grade and I just had to keep a step and a half with every I just had to keep a step and a half with everybody because there's a way that this is a hard this is a really hard really tough story about pressure and about stratified resources in Chicago that my parents did not have any faith that if they could put me in like a school that was in my neighborhood or closer to like where we lived, that like that would be a school that was treated similarly when it came college time or treated similarly when it came budget cut time or treated similarly when it came time to assign who, who's a TFA teacher and who gets a teacher who's actually like been around the block a couple of times. Like all of those things, they had no faith in Chicago's public school system to address those things. And whether or not that was, like, that's not me trying to talk no shit on CPS. It's just a fact of like how my parents were trying to engage with this question because they were looking at like the resources that were being funneled into this. And so I think that there's a story to be told there about that. I think there's also a story to be told there about like, I appreciate and know that like my parents were are were and are like very deeply like thoughtful and strategic people and with all of the like literal genius that they have between the two of them they never flinch from betting on me to figure some shit out at some level when my dad said like you can make it in this writing game but you have to treat it like you have to treat it with an actual seriousness that you're not bringing to this right now I knew that he meant that shit because he had literally never said I believe you can do this and not meant it uh but to that and I think that like in many ways that helps with the evolution of like where I'm in, in these spaces now I started with this whole idea of like biome and ecosystem because I was a foreign biome and ecosystem that I was entering into every day and I had almost no capital I was almost no I like whatever it was like the food chain factually I was not in it or I was at the bottom of it and then I would come home and it was just and it was just me and my two parents it was just like our family right um whereas now like when I enter into a, a space that is like that, that is like, that is moneyed, that is resourced, that is like uh, reflective of allegiance to or simply whiteness. <laughs> I know that I'm not going to be there indefinitely. <laughs> So I think that that helps me regulate that like the values I need in order to survive are an allegiance to myself as opposed to the norms of the space. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, 100%. Wow. Mm. I, dude, you got such a crazy story. Such it's a been a while. Far why this essay collection been so difficult, yo. I'm just like I go through them and I'm just like these can't these stories can't possibly all have happened to the same person. And I wrote like I'm just like no 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 no. There's no way that I'm writing about like the first therapist office I was ever in. I ran out of. But also, you want to know what else I ran from? A tornado. <laughs> 
But both of those are in the collection. Like both of those things are true. Oh, One of them is an essay it. about Bojack oh. Horseman. One of them is an essay about uh, going to Greenville, Mississippi. But realistically, the story of how he got away from the tornado is actually the day that Noel, uh, if he hadn't already, like punched his forever like ride or die friendship card because we went to Soundset 2012 and Big Crit. God bless him. I love, I love, I love his work. I love his work. I've, I've come to love his work. But then my first introduction to him was this man going over his set time and it had been 112 degrees all that dang day. And there was no clouds in the sky, but he's like, I want to do one more song. And I saw his chain and I was like, at first, like, it's, I don't know if you've ever seen his chain, but it's like this black disc, which has um, the shape of the state of Mississippi carved out of it. But when I saw it, I was like, yo, this dude got a, got a cleaver on his chain? Yo, that's hard as hell. <laughs> like, but then I saw that it was Mississippi because he was talking, like, you know, that's what he talks about. He talks about being from yeah. Mississippi because like, that dude is like an incredible, incredible artist, but like other people won geography lottery. So like, you know, it is what it is but so then um he finishes his set he goes on Lupe Fiasco comes on next and he's he's like second to last he's like co-headlining the show because we're in Minnesota and whatnot and so Lupe got this gold microphone this part the gold microphone is not important to the story but it's important to me that you know that and so he look off in the distance after he's done doing like you know like a couple of tracks off of lasers out of obligation, then talking about how upset he was about lasers and then going into the songs that we actually came in to see. Uh, but he points off in the distance and he sees this cloud <laughs> and he says, hey, y'all, we got to pray to the rain God that the cloud going to bring us, going to bring us some rain. And that cloud then multiplied into a massive bank at which point a festival employee waves Lupe down from the front and says, hey, bro, there's a tornado coming. At which point Lupe then looks up and says, hey, y'all, uh, what's your name? Dave. Dave says there's a tornado coming. Concert's over. Peace. <laughs> and then he ran off, ran back on, unscrewed his special microphone, yammed that shit in his pocket, and ran away again. <laughs> you can't make that up. You can't make that up. <laughs> you, can't. Like, you can't. Like, there's, there's no part of it that, like, is, it lends itself well to making it up. And yet, like, when I look across the whole situation of it, I'm just like, dang, like, all these things couldn't possibly have happened to the same person. But that's why I had to use different shows to talk about them. <laughs> Like literally minute to the second that like Lupe runs off the thunder booms. And I was just like heavy handed, really? <laughs> like it started hailing and it was wild. There was so much going on, yo. There's so much going on. <laughs> that's amazing. I, you know what, that's, I, I only have a couple of questions. Oh, you're all good, um, uh, This is This is what? the highlight of my day, truly. What are your, um, I know you're a sports fan, obviously, in Chicago. Naturally. Um, what, uh, what are your feelings about the, the Bulls and their, I guess, playoff aspirations? Well, you know, like, here's the thing. <laughs> I would feel better if Lonzo were there. And, but I think that this is a team that was, like, probably should have been in the lottery last year. <laughs> like, we didn't, like, nice. really come – like, we've been in the lottery since – for like four years and we caught the number seven pick three times in a row and we turned that into lowry marketing useless Lendell carter jr useless and kobe white tba and then eventually we got the number four pick we got patrick williams this dude is able to like guard feasibly Kawhi leonard lebron james and Giannis in the same week at 19 years old like the future is bright for this kid like you can see the size of that boy hands like it's very exciting for that and so like the thing is like everybody was out here like everybody all the shock shots all the like espn commentators everybody was killing us about this DeRozan rosen sign 
Everybody killing us about this DeRozan signing. Where were we a couple weeks ago? Them debating whether he should be number four or number five in the MVP voting. So the reality is that this, this is really like a kind of found money season for all of us. I think that like everybody thinks that they're like rubbing it, rubbing salt in our wound for saying like, oh, the Bulls are like not in championship contention. We knew that. <laughs> we knew that. This is about like Patrick getting some playoff. This is about Patrick getting some playoff experience and us getting some good moments with DeMar. Like <laughs> I would feel better if Lonzo were there. I also also feel like it's kind of wild that like everybody always wants to say everybody on the like uh sports podcast I listen to a lot of ringer podcast network but everybody besides Jason Law shouts to the homie um everybody is saying just like all this nonsense about like okay well like Chicago's looking like a, a tasty like playoff matchup all right bro whatever you want like it's whatever you want to say but the fact of the matter is like if the league's about to try and find us a whole first round pick for Lonzo Ball wanting to be here instead of like wondering where Zion Williamson is in New Orleans. It's true. It's facts. Then and he's not there because he has a meniscus tear and he's ruled out for the rest of the season. That should be the first thing that you are saying after you are saying they are a play tasty matchup because we have literally not had all of our guys since the end of 2021. <laughs> and to look at what they did with all of their guys. Like good top of the top of the East. Like we were doing all right. We were doing all right, and we will do all right again. Like, this is a long-scale rebuild. That Garpax situation had us tripping for a long time. Tripping. Tripping. Lowry marketing. Lowry marketing. Like, come on, son. Like, they were really out here trying to say, like, when they drafted him, I remember this to this day. When they drafted him, the first thing they said is, yeah, he can be a poor man's Christoph's Porzingis. And by that point, we already knew that Porzingis was a poor man's Porzingis. So what exactly did we buy? (laughs) I, as a, a, I'm a Raptors fan because I'm Canadian. So like, but not by default, I think I, I love what they do most recently in the last like five to 10 years with like the side. But I think DeRozan is just like always going to be a guy that people hate on just because he is so, he's not trendy. He's so consistent. Especially so since he went to grad school out in San Antonio. Shout out to the Exactly. Spurs. <laughs> exactly. It was a true way to but like he learned how to be a playmaker in a way that, you know, when we have all our guys back, we'll see what happens. I think that we were good to stay in. I think we were good to stand pat at the trade deadline. There's nobody on this team who I would trade for Jeremy Grant. No, no. And that dude is also, I don't know, I think it's a little bit of a mystery as well. Like he, I think he went from Denver where he had a role where he was like playing for something and now he's in Detroit where he's been in and out of the lineup in regards to injuries. I get it. Like he wanted to be the man. He wanted to be the man, and that's real. But like you know, everyone can't be the man. Time to go home. Everyone can't be the man, though. It was like, like, look, man, it's time. It's time to come home. It's time to come home. Like you, like you did. You did your due diligence. You ain't going to no Hall of Fame. No, no, no. I agree. Um, but yeah, so like, I think I was, I was saying, um, 
the essay collection, which is what I'm working on right now, uh, it's called, like I said, it's called The Dead Don't Need Reminding. Um, it follows alongside my own personal narrative of trying to find my great-grandfather's records. It follows uh, what I've been able to piece together of his story. So I had a great-grandfather named Albert Edward Leland, uh, and he was an extremely light-skinned Black dude uh, from Mississippi. <laughs> and he moved down to Greenville with his wife, Elizabeth, and they had my, they had a couple of children, including my infant grandmother. And so when she was about four years old, uh, because my great-grandfather had convinced the National Life Insurance Company and the people of this town that he was a white man, but he wasn't. He passed for white for a living. Uh, and one day they found out and they came up to his house or they came up to his job. The reports diverged, but I personally think that it was the job. Um, but they came up to his job and they told him, hey, we do not respect this hustle. <laughs> um, you have 24 hours, pack up all your stuff. Uh, if we ever see you or anyone you love in the city limits again, we will tar and feather you to death. And he was like, oh, well, uh, it doesn't really seem like there's a, really a choice there. <laughs> so he packed up all, he was like, Dad, like it was made very clear we had to leave Mississippi that night and so they left and so that is how my grandmother ends up being in east st louis to be introduced to my grandfather because he had asked the lady of the church uh to help him find a wife and she said i have just the girl for you she is the prettiest girl in all east st louis and that's how my father was born <laughs> um and so I learned that story when I was in a fit of life-threatening depression, uh, like deep, deep life-threatening depression from like undergrad, from being like kicked out, not graduating with my class, uh, having to like scrape myself back up from there. And so in a lot of ways, feeling that like it was disrespectful for me not to want my life in the face of like, that is what was survived prior to you. Like that, these are the things that you come from. Your abuelo goes through this, your great grandfather goes through that. What can you make of all this survival? Um, and so the book is about that, but it is also about, uh, and like, uh, it's like cultural criticism insofar as there's an essay in there about like Bojack Horseman. There's an essay in there about Atlanta. There's an essay in there about uh, my habit of, my habit slash hustle rather of telling white people that I'm Ezekiel Elliott's cousin so I can get free drinks. Uh, all number of things are kind of like in this book. So in a lot of ways, like that story of like this, I can't believe all these things have happened to one person, <laughs> uh, you know, is paired with like the deep surrealism of like, you know, being a northerner who like travels and like travels to and lives in the American South and like knowing that like these things are just like fund, like Mississippi is like the blackest state in the union, <laughs> uh, like demographically, or at least one of the top three blackest states in the union and knowing and fall and knowing the history of that knowing the pain that has been like inflicted on like me and members of my family there but also to find that like Mississippi is a place of profound beauty and unbelievable community among folks uh like the whole collection is kind of like tracking the ways that like that time period in my life those like five years of trying to track down those records in a lot of ways was me utilizing that tracking down of that story to teach myself how to live again. I can't even imagine the emotional roller coaster that you were probably still on. Like you mentioned, you mentioned it, like you were still in the weeds, like you're writing this book right now. So like, I can't even imagine daily how that's feeling. 
it has been a lot <laughs> it has been a lot like there's just no way for me to pretend that it hasn't been um i think that like sentence for sentence is some of the best work that i've ever done that's the most honest writing i've ever done but i think that also it has been an interesting way to return back to like writing like personal narrative because that was a lot of what was going on in um, my poetry collection and refuse right but i think that refuse had two i don't want to say advantages but two like very distinctly different factors than writing this essay collection insofar as like refuse had at one level just the sheer fact that like poetry wise like people have the distance of the speaker right like there are ways that that speaker is me and there are ways that he isn't um there are things yeah. about like much of it is like very is like autobiographically inspired but it is also under under the understanding that like you know we have our like secondary self as like um oh gosh what is the name uh rhyme of the ancient mariner i guess uh coleridge Samuel Coleridge would tell us, right? They had me teaching 19th century British literature for two semesters in a row. So I've just like internalized that like very random piece of knowledge about 19th century British poetry. Um, but so it had like at that level, like there's the poet, there's like the distance of the poem. There is the way that like uh, a transfiguration of image and like economy of language can be prioritized over like biographical uh, examination in terms of both the experience as a writer and also as the experience of the reader. So there's that. And then there's the other thing, which is that like, because it was definitively my first book, <laughs> And so like, I was able to enter into it with this tremendous, I don't even want to call it innocence, right? But I had unrealistic emotional aspirations for the book. I had an understanding that like, and I guess this is, this is maybe like, I mean, no, it's not even maybe, it is very definitively part of like why there's like a Kanye essay in the book is that like, I had learned or to try and like make my art into something that vanquished or verified the that certain pain made me special right and i had this idea that to write this book was going to be to change my life which it did but i think that i was also putting pressure on the book to unmake the parts of my life that I did not want anymore. And because it was my first book, I was able to enter into it with an under, with those expectations kind of tucked beneath my tongue. And to enter into this essay collection, which is now the fourth book that I've ever completed a draft of, um, I have none of those illusions, but it's that Baldwin quote, right? Of like, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Thank you.